0: Welcome to Movie Moments, discussing the greatest movies of all time, plus all the newest films in theaters and streaming. Like us, rate us, share us. Here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry.
1: We are back with another edition of movie moments i am mike rags with my good buddy chuck curry here to talk about the greatest movies of all time and the new ones that are coming out in theaters and streaming today and we've got another special guest on the show today as chuck had a chance to talk to zach schoenfeld uh author of a new book about Nicolas cage we'll talk to him about that a little bit later on Uh, we've got some new movies in theaters this weekend and we are going to count down our 10 favorite movies from 20 years ago. And it's an interesting list, Chuck, at least for me, I've got two fish, two Christmas movies, two school movies, uh, Mm -hmm. and a horse. There's a lot on my list that made me look back at 2003. That was a pretty decent year in movies.
0: Yeah, I would say decent, not stupendous. Uh,
1: I will say this. There's, there's two Christmas classics and two comedy classics on the list. That's hard to do. Or maybe you disagree.
0: Uh, no, I do not. I, I, it depends on your point of view and your your taste in film. I know what you're. I know exactly what you're going to pick, and I would say uh, at least one of them in terms of the comedy would not be on my list.
1: Okay, uh, let's uh, let's talk about new movies hitting theaters. And I got to tell you, Chuck, uh, for a for a trilogy that was so popular back in the day, The Hunger Games, um, to wait this long to do a prequel, and no stars are in it. I mean, I can't feel any buzz for The Hunger Games. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, an even worse title. Give me some good news about this film and how it's going to make some money, because I just don't have a feel that it will.
0: I mean, to make money, Mike, it's going to have to have a a large portion of the original fan base to come out and see it. I know the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes is 60% positive. Obviously, it could be a lot worse. Uh, They did get a positive number, 60%. It is tracking to be the number one opening movie of the weekend. I don't know the exact total. Uh, but obviously, you know, these movies are, are not cheap. I'm sure the budgets were up there. Um, you're not, you know, you know, you're not playing with, uh, in terms of marketing, a Jennifer Garner, I mean, a Jennifer Lawrence, so it, it's a little bit of a tougher sell as you, as you stated, uh, we'll see. I think what is interesting, uh, beside that, uh, and, and trolls opening nationwide, you got this, uh, this horror movie by Eli Roth, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, which has gotten really, really, really good reviews. A lot of uh, critics comparing it to the original Scream, saying is that it's the best Scream movie since the original Scream. That's pretty high praise indeed. And what's interesting about it, uh, and if you want to expand on this, the budget of the film was fifteen million dollars. Fifteen million dollars. I know it doesn't have you know CGI superheroes flying around, uh, but the reality is it goes to show you that. Uh, and I do think Eli Roth's a good director uh, in terms of horror. He did uh, Hostile. One and two, I I think the original Hostel's a really super well done movie, not for all taste, but very well done. And he did a movie called Cabin F- Fever, which is is uh, I'm a big fan of that yeah.
1: film. Yeah,
0: he's he's got talent, no doubt. But the reality is this: why can he produce and mount a movie, direct a movie, with a 15 million dollar budget that gets really good reviews, that looks good, right? Why can he do that? And these other directors, you know. Uh, need to spend on fluff. They're spending seventy-five million dollars on on almost anything. Almost any movie now, of course, if it's not a small indie indie, but if it has anything to do with studio release marketing, it's expensive. So good for him. And this is this is the trend that Hollywood needs to embrace and wrap wrap uh, its brain around. You got to make movies for fifteen to twenty-five million dollars. Uh, I'd rather spend fifteen million dollars on Thanksgiving, Mike. I got to be honest. I know you're gonna. You know, want to hit me over the head with a phone book saying this, but I'd rather spend fifteen million to make Thanksgiving than two hundred ninety-five million to make Indiana Jones and the Dollar Destiny, just from a of a financial decision well, point of let's view. Let's say
1: you're ahead of if you're ahead of a studio, which we I wouldn't mind being. That that's very fiscally responsible. There's no doubt about it. This is actually based on a grindhouse trailer from way back when um, that he decided to expand upon. Uh, and Eli, I think the last thing he did was the house with a clock in its walls, kind of a kid's horror movie that was pretty right. good actually with, yeah. with, uh, Jack Black, um, and cabin fever, it almost made my list, uh, that we're going to talk about, about 20 years ago. Obviously the guy's got talent, gets a little too dark sometimes, but maybe we need a little dark, uh, Thanksgiving Chuck. This looks interesting. Let's hope it finds it, a niche. Um, definitely counter-programming to the hunger games and the trolls movie. Uh, So we'll see what kind of the question. Really, the question is, are these the type of movies you're going to get Napoleon and Disney's wish for Thanksgiving? Yeah. Uh, Do do you see a drove of people just being in the theaters from Wednesday to Sunday coming up with these movies in hand?
0: It has it has a very different feel overall. And again, I, I know this. Sounds almost Twilight Zone-esque, but for me, post-COVID, like the fact that it, we're going to go into Thanksgiving next week, it, it sort of feels surreal to me. And in the Christmas season, it, it just, everything feels so quick and rushed in, in the modern culture post-COVID for, for me. But, you know, I got to say last week when I talked about the Marvels and how much, you know, I was disappointed in the film, I was saying it was a $150 million movie. Turns out that I read it was two hundred. 250 million dollar movie that they spent on the marvels a movie with crazy. no 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 point in existing no substance you I mean some people are getting entertainment value out of it but you you have to make 800 million worldwide to get your money to just break even it's like the gamble is not worth it um, you know i mean i know the original uh, captain marvel did over a billion dollars worldwide but that caught that was riding the wave of everybody's going to see every single superhero movie right. uh in production. And, you know, it's not stopping because this week there was a bunch of casting news uh, about these Marvel movies. And Pedro Pasquale reportedly is, uh, you know, signing his name on the dotted line to, to star in the Fantastic Four reboot, uh, playing Reed Richards. Um, they want another big actor to, to play um, Galactus, uh, the, the, the villain. You got um, a, a, an actress who. Isn't to me. I've never heard of her, but she's gonna play one of the main villains in Superman Legacy. So um, I, I see this genre, which obviously has been a staple for the last like 20 years at least, you know, at least the last 15 since Iron Man came out. Um, I see the big properties; they're gonna stampede ahead. I think it's the side stuff like Captain Marvel or Ant Man. Uh, those characters, I think you're not going to see Movies go into production That's going to be a long time But the main one, Superman, Batman, Captain America, whatever oh, Here's another story that, that I that I heard That Captain America 4 With Anthony Mackie uh, mm-hmm. Holding the shield They've delayed that Until uh, till, uh, next year And they're going to start doing six major reshoots In January like, Evidently you tested poorly in test screenings uh, Mike, the money That they're sinking into this stuff uh, it's like a bottomless well.
1: Well, it's not just uh, the those movies too. You got movies like Dune or even The Hunger Games. These big tentpole pictures that I just don't feel like <sighs> it, it ca- captures the zeitgeist anymore of moviegoers. Uh, y- uh, you, you need you need a swing like Barbie to connect, or you're just gonna find uh, oblivion. That sort of feels like it's like you know you're lucky to hit 300. And be successful now in the movie theaters And I just don't feel these titles that are coming out Even a movie like uh, Disney's Wish uh, You look at that and it's fluff It's not anything substantial as far as a Disney picture uh, The mo- the music sounds awful uh, My daughter talks as if the kids are making fun of it in school um, Really, Not like when Frozen came out Boom, uh, it captures the zeitgeist It goes crazy and it's an instant classic. You just don't. The instant classics, a few and far between, Chuck. Well, uh, let, let me
0: ask you. Let me ask you a question. Your daughter's 13, correct?
1: Mm hmm. Uh,
0: does she go to the movies with just you or her friends?
1: She doesn't go with her friends. That That is not no. even in conversation much at so all. It's not uh, even in conversation. It's not even like mom, dad. Can I go to the movies with my friends? Because I even talked to her about, hey, is your what's the buzz about this such-and-such such movie? Are people talking about it? And it's lukewarm at best for some of them. Uh, and they're all stuck in their little TikTok worlds. Unless a movie's, um, you know, <laughs> 10 and a half seconds, I, I don't even know if they care anymore, Chuck. It's hard to get her to just, uh, and I know this is a universal problem, not just a me problem. Uh, they, they, growing up in a different time, movies, Friday night, coming out is not that much of a big deal anymore for these kids. If it's a big deal at all, uh, let alone a Friday night. Uh, it, it, and it's sad because that the communal feeling you get when you go to a movies and you see it with a bunch, with a bunch of, even when my daughter goes to the movies and we see something big with a bunch of people and you get reactions, she's like, Oh my God, this is incredible. I love it. I'm like, Bella, this used to be every Friday. It didn't have to be just, uh, you know, uh, you know, when she, when we saw free guy, and there's a great cameo by, you know, Chris Evans as Captain America. The place went wild and she got so wrapped up into it. I'm like, well, yeah. you sh- probably should have been at the Ziegfeld when we saw Jurassic Park or Lost World. That right. that those days are gone, unfortunately, they are. although they do still happen. I should say they're they gone. Po- they they, they po- happen. It's,
0: it, you know, it's like it's, it's sort of like a heart monitor where, you know, the heart rate goes up and down and up and down. There's a lot more downs than ups. There are occasional ups that you know, reminisce and bring back terrific memories of, uh, of a culture that, uh, I think has changed, uh, so dramatically, uh, really in the last 10 years to, to, to it's just, uh, become ama- amazing. I, I, I got, I want to just,
1: talk, well, before about- you go into movie news, there are a couple of movies I just want to bring up that I did sure, get a chance to see on streaming that I want to uh, recommend because I think Netflix has upped their game a little bit. Um, probably from the backlash of so many people complaining about how much it costs now, but I got a chance to see David Fincher's the killer with Michael Festbender. It's it's a very stylistic movie, real good. I got a chance to see pain hustlers, which I really enjoyed. Emily Blunt's got a real good performance in that. So does Chris Evans, as a matter of fact, and in a storyline that seems tired out about, you know, the opioid addiction and how people got rich off of it, but they really have an interesting spin to it. But I really want to praise Nyad, which I actually loved. And all three of these are available on Netflix. Nyad about the swimmer, uh, right. the Olympic swimmer who tries to go from Cuba to Key West, played by Annette Benning, and her best friend is played by Jodie Foster. I was surprised at how this movie reminded me of the old days, Chuck, where a movie just took its time, paced itself, and delivered a payoff at the end that just kept building and building and building. And then when you get to that ending, when you, we kind of all know how it's going to end, obviously, it's still a, a great payoff. And what a performance! by Annette bedding who is sure to get an Oscar nomination. I would highly recommend all three movies, but if you're going to put on one tonight, start with Nyad, uh, cause it's really, really an enjoyable film.
0: You know, it's interesting. I didn't get a chance to see it, but we booked that here at the theater I'm involved in in East Strasbourg, the independent theater. And uh, basically, you know, nobody came uh, right. and that's really been the trend. I mean, you know, in full disclosure, and that this, this is an interesting um, overview of what's happening in this country to these smaller independent what, quote-unquote, what they used to call art house theaters, is that um, the, the audience for these type of movies is is gone. It really, I mean, it really is gone. So a lot of these theaters either have gone by the wayside or are trying to reinvent themselves as more studio houses. We're in uh, discussion of really what kind of business model if we're going to survive uh, going forward. I mean, do we become just an event house and do classic revivals and theater rentals and so on and so forth and, and stream our payroll? Uh, because I don't see... Um, I don't see a road where people come back uh, in, to, to be self-sufficient for movies like NIAID and even the movies The Descendant. We just booked that today for a show uh, as we speak. I think there's seven people uh, sitting in the, uh, in, in, in the theater. But uh, that movie, I think, opened on like uh, 900 screens last week, and I think it did like three and a half million dollars It's a far cry because when, when we get to our list of the top 10 movies we liked from 19 i mean from 2003 20 years ago there's one movie on that list i was looking at it mike it cost one, 1.2 uh, 1, $1. million dollars of produce and went up grossing 65 million worldwide those those wow. days they're like they're over yeah. um you know it's just it's so it's, it's it's just such a uh a different landscape
1: all right get into your movie news i just here, wanted here, to bring here, up just,
2: those just, films chill.
0: Talk about jogging in memory because when I met you many years ago, uh, you were working at a video store. And in 1989, this, this week in, um, in movie history, November 19th, 1989, Warner Brothers made a decision to release Tim Burton's Batman on VHS at a sell through price $24.99. I remember that was that. the first forte into sell throughs. I think, if I recall, and you could self correct me, I think when the video store got a movie back then, they were paying wholesale. About like right in the 90, dollars $90 range yeah. between 85 and a hundred bucks. Right.
1: Yep. Yeah, depended so on then, the uh, distribution, but yeah, it was right in there. Yep.
0: Right. So then Warner Brothers got this idea. Hey, Batman's a huge hit. People love it. They want to see it. Let's sell it through the public. twenty four ninety nine. And then when, uh, Lethal Weapon, uh, two, uh, came out, uh, a few months later on, they did the same thing. And then studios started to follow, uh, that trend VHS. I actually remember 97. Me and my wife went to Blockbuster Video. We pre-ordered Titanic and we picked it up at midnight, went home. Mike, I think it was like a Thursday night. We At midnight, we went home and watched it. That's crazy. Wow. If you think about wow. it in retrospect, the fact that we pre-ordered a VHS, it was a VHS, right? Pre-ordered yeah, VHS. double,
1: double. Remember, there's the bigger yeah. box. There was two of them. And, and yeah. so
0: pick it up at Blockbuster at midnight. Very excited to do so, by the way. Go home and watch it. Like, in what world were we living in?
1: Well, definitely not the world now, because I don't know if I could stay up till 3 a.m. to finish that film, to be honest with you. But yeah, definitely a different world. Now I remember the good old days of the double box VHS movies that would Gettysburg of the, of the like of those, where you had to take one out and put one in. They were so long, Chuck. Uh, we don't have to worry about that anymore now, do we? I don't. Well, I I, I I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I don't remember the last time I plopped a DVD into my machine. Yeah, me it's,
0: um, me it's, it's been it's got to be. I think the last time I put a Blu-ray in was Joker. That's the last. Wow. That is the last Blu-ray I bought was Joker. Joaquin. Phoenix.
1: The last Blu-ray I bought was the Lost World of uh, the uh, Jurassic wow. World. The Jurassic World was the last one I bought. So. Yeah. Uh, it, how many mo-
0: How many movies do you own digitally? I probably own about twenty five.
1: Uh, honestly, I don't own any. <gasps> really? Okay. <laughs> I don't. I. Sorry. Yeah. Here's
0: another one that's going to jog your memory, and this is really good news. Um, you remember James Cameron's The Abyss, which came out. In 1989 now he's been nowhere to be seen on a home video Blu-ray has not never been in, in on a Blu-ray format It's uh, bounced around a couple times streaming, but not for a while. Uh, well, they just announced that a 4k edition will play in theaters one night. December 6th and then the 4k uh, streaming uh, uh, a special edition will premiere on Amazon and Apple TV. I think December 9th. So in theaters one night only James Cameron's 4k special edition of the abyss. That's awesome news. Uh, and then December 9th, uh, stream on Amazon and Apple. And then I think in March, it's going to be on in, in Blu-ray. W- why can't they get that out for Christmas? But, um, I love, we both love the abyss. Uh, I think it's a terrific, terrific movie, yeah. especially the special editions. Awesome, Yeah,
1: for sure. Which we, I don't know if I've watched it since we worked at the video store, to be honest with you, Chuck. Mm. And a good movie that is coming out, uh, in time for the holidays is a recut, uh, extended version of Rudy. Um, which there's some good scenes in there that I actually think I sent one to you that I don't even know how it got on the cutting room floor, but we're both big fans of that movie. So out on Blu-ray is a special edition director's cut of Rudy. Um, he still gets the sack at the end, so I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So, uh, but it's fun that, uh, they recognize how important that movie is to a lot of, not only sports movies fans, but it, boy, that movie touches so many levels of emotion. It's ridiculous
0: uh listen uh, that being the two best sports movies for my money ever produced david onsbos uh, Hoosiers and the david Onspa's Rudy uh classic perfect movies from beginning to end a a, a case study mike in character development uh, on on the page in the final cut uh just a great movie Rudy uh here, here's an interesting one I, I was um looking at birthdays i know we passed but uh November 16 1907 the late burgess Meredith. Uh, was born. <laughs> Believe it or not, he would have been 116 years old. I mean, talk about how long we've been on this earth, Mike. And, anyway, and
1: Stallone probably would have put him in the last few movies too.
0: Sure. Uh, <laughs> obviously, Mickey and Rocky and the Penguin and the Batman TV show. But you know, he might have he might have been the star of the most iconic Twilight Zone episode of all time, "Time Enough at Last," playing a, a, a bank clerk, sort of a nerdy person who is intimidated by his overbearing wife. Uh, mm-hmm. world, world goes bonkers after a nuclear explosion. He has all the books that he ever want and read because he loves reading books at his disposal. And in the last 30 seconds of the episode, his glasses fall off and break. Uh, oh, that was a tough pill to swallow, but what a great piece of television, Mike.
1: Yeah, it is. And uh and, and his Twilight, I, I still enjoy his few scenes in the grumpy old men films that he played Jack Lemon's father. Um uh, not the they're not classic movies, there's some laughs in it, but the best but he's laughs in he's the best laughs come from him and his outtake reels at the end of both oh, yeah. films. So uh, Burgess Meredith was definitely a great one. And before you go any farther, we, sure. we failed to do it last week, and I, I do want to bring it up today. Um, the passing of Matthew Perry. Um we didn't get a chance to talk about it. Um, with the amount of interviews and stuff we've done, right, not right. listen, let's not, let's face it, a TV icon with Chandler and what he did for that show and what he did for basically tell, he was the funniest one on that show. There's no doubt about it. His comic timing is impeccable, but I do want to bring up, you know, there's a movie that you need to watch. That's actually pretty darn good that he was in and it's called fool's rush in, um, him and Salma Hayek in a very good comedy, uh, about a mixed uh, cultures, uh, taking place in Vegas. Uh, a lot of people see it. it's got a little bit of a cult following, but I do want to bring up, you know, he did the, the, the nine hole yards and the 10 hole yards with Bruce Willis to some success. But if you want to see a good portion of what Matthew Perry could do on the screen, I thought he was very good in the lead and fools rush in Chuck.
0: Yeah, I, I, I did too. I mean, listen, he was always an appealing guy, obviously him and the rest of the main cast of friends, you know, hit lightning in a bottle. That's a rare Opportunity that very few actors and actresses ever get in in, in a lifetime or, or a, a, a generation. But, uh, you know, that night when I heard the news, uh, a buddy was hanging out with me and came over and said, did you hear this? I said, what? And said, Matthew Perry passed away. And it's like that like that was affecting. That, that it was a gut.
1: Effect. It was a gut punch. I'm yeah. not going to lie. Yeah. It was. It I mean, was it sort
0: of felt like. I mean, I remember when Robin Williams passed, uh, especially mm-hmm. way past. Uh, that was hard to stomach back then. And this was tough too, because, you know, by all accounts, and I watched that interview that he did, I think it was, what was it? Uh, at 2020, did he, he did that interview on, I think it was 2020, talked about his alcoholism and his struggle. Yep. And he was, he bared his soul. And that's, I think the cool thing to do, because listen, like he said, you know, you might as well just be honest. And if other people could get help and, and and, and learn from your experience and your journey, I think that's what we should all do. Um, but you know i think he understood that he caught lightning in a bottle and I, and he actually gave an interview which i i did watch that he said that you know when he moved into his his house and he had pretty much everything at his disposal it was amazing for like 6 months and then 6 months in he sort of said this is not real happiness like real you know real happiness is you know just having a good conversation you know hanging out you know making a difference in somebody's life it's not about materialism and You know he was a good guy, so it was a it was a a real bummer of a loss.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. I I did want to bring that up because we failed to do it last week. You got any other movie news or or this date in history or whatever you do? Uh, No, that's it. All right, uh, we'll we'll move on. That was
0: a, uh, that was a little abrupt, but I mean, I could listen. I could keep going and going. No, no, no. We've got an but, interview but, but to I, get
1: to uh, later on. No, I, let's, I understand. Let's keep let's keep moving forward. Don't forget Zach Schoenfeld coming up a little bit later on. Uh, wrote a book about Nick Cage, and Chuck had a chance to talk to him. But before we do that, let's go back 20 years ago, Chuck, uh, to 2003, uh, and talk about our 10 favorite movies of that year. And the great thing, maybe of all, is that. Uh, 2003 finally brought the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is just a day and a. I I mean, it, it's just like, felt like a year of watching all three movies. It finally came to an end. In fact, you know, Peter Jackson did win the Academy Awards that year, finally for the Lord of the Rings. But I think it's safe to say, and we're, I mean, I'm fans of the movie, but I'm not a geek. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've watched them again since they were out in theaters, uh, visually stunning, just way too overloan, overlong and overblown. Um, yes. I get I mean, what he was trying to do, but gosh, he could have got there I, a little bit. It took him forever to, to get those say, rings and get back, you know, but. I'm
0: going to tell you something. I saw all three of them in the theater with my wife. And the mm-hmm. first two, the first two, we looked at each other and I said to her, are you in as much pain as I am? Because <laughs> I can't get through. I can't get through. I cannot get through it. My, like I it's was in pain. like, it, it, I mean, this, the last one, the last one, which I think finally won the Oscar for best picture, uh, was, was better. For me, but they would talk they were just too long, too bloated., um, yeah, 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 not for me.
1: And then he goes back and does the the the, <laughs> t- the prequels. I mean, I didn't even see any of those. It's just not my cup of tea. Me so neither. I, I, That's I fine. To start there. other people. okay. Uh, and and so let's start with our uh, are the ones that we liked. um, and I'll start with my. 10 through six. And you give me your thoughts. Uh, my number 10 is a great thriller and uh, got nominated for a lot of movies from Clint Eastwood. I really enjoyed Mystic River uh, with Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon and Tim Robbins. It might have been higher on the list, Chuck, and more of the departed than it is um, that where it stands now. I, I, the movie just ends on such a downer. It's hard to rewatch. It's hard to explain why they went in the direction that they did based on the Dennis Lehan mo- novel, but I did right. enjoy Mystic River. It really captured Boston. I liked it a lot. Uh, the Italian Job, my number nine. Talked for years about making a sequel for this movie. Very effective action, uh, somewhat comedy heist movie with a great cast with Charlize Theron and Marky Mark and you got uh, Ed Norton and his bad guy best. Jason Statham as well. I love love the Italian job. I thought that was very well done and even had a great cameo from Donald Sutherland. Uh, Finding Nemo was my number eight. A Pixar movie, of course, usually finds its way on my list. Albert Brooks uh, lends the voice for Finding Nemo, but it really made a star uh, on on, on the big screen for Ellen DeGeneres, who did uh, uh, Finding Dory later on. A a very funny uh, role for her. My number seven, I, I mentioned a horse and that horse was Seabiscuit. Uh, Gary Ross's classic movie with jet, uh, with Toby Maguire and Jeff Bridges and a surprising Elizabeth Banks, very effective in this film too, Chuck, I thought it captured the time and place perfectly. Another, uh, highly nominated film, great performance by Chris Cooper, uh, Seabiscuits my number seven and my number six might be a bit of a surprise, but I really like it. You talk about small movies, not, uh, with a lot of, uh, budget behind it. But I loved Shattered Glass, which starred Hayden Christensen and Peter Sarsgaard, uh, the 2003. 2003- a uh, movie which uh, was written and directed by Billy Ray uh, about that author for the, uh, for vanity fair, it totally makes up stories. And, uh, Peter Skarsgård's his, uh, is his, uh, editor, uh, trying to track down if his stories are real or not, but a really surprising, very effective performance by Hayden Christensen, who we all remember, of course, as, uh, Darth Vader, the origin story there, uh, really surprised at how good he is in that movie and, and the, and the, and the storyline about Steven Glass and what he did for the new Republic, um, in this film, it was just unbelievable So I'd recommend Shattered Glass if you haven't seen it It was the sixth best movie for me that year So there's my first five Mystic River, The Italian Job, Finding Nemo Sea Biscuit, and Shattered Glass You know, we talk about the 80s and 90s a lot And go back and watch these movies over and over again We forget in the 2000s and 2010 Some of these movies I really like There's movies on here I haven't seen in quite a while That I want to go back and revisit What would you think of those five, Chuck, if any of them?
0: Two of them are on my list. This is—it's a good list. I mean, when you go back, to even now, twenty years, these lists look a lot better in comparison to a lot of stuff they're releasing now. I just worry—you know—in ten years, what's going to be the quality of real films? I'm talking about storytelling uh, type of, of films, or is this just going to be—you know—the bi- the big content uh, that's going to. You know, play in, in big theaters and in, you know, big streaming events. I don't know. We're going to see. It's going to be very interesting uh, to say the list. Good good list, though. My number 10, I went with uh, I went with Terminator 3 because I actually think that the last half hour of this movie is, is super good. And I think it's a nice uh, end to a trilogy. I know it wasn't directed by James Cameron, but I think it has a lot of good elements. I think it's very thought-provoking. Nick Stahl, Claire Danes really good. Arnold's good. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's a solid film, and like I said, when it goes really deep in the last half hour, I, I find it to be a very thought-provoking movie. I think it's well-scored, and, uh, you know, to, to people who want to dismiss it because Cameron's not involved, you know, so be it. I, I, I like it. I think it's good. My number nine, I'm one with secondhand lions, uh, terrific cast, Michael Caine, Robert Duvall, Helly Joel Osment. Uh, good banter. It's a good script, good chemistry. It's a joy to watch these actors on screen in a character-driven movie, I like it a lot. Number eight, I went with the movie Monster. Charlize Theron. Uh, this Good was play. proof, Mike, that um, she was uh, she she took no prisoners as an actress. I mean, she didn't care about her, her appearance. She plays nope. a serial, a true life serial killer who was a prostitute and killed uh, Johns. She's excellent in that movie. Here's the thing: a that movie that's the movie that cost 1.2 million dollars right. to produce, who ended up grossing 64 million at the box office, almost stunning. Patty Jenkins, who wound up doing Wonder Woman, uh, that was her first feature monster number eight uh i went with lost in translation Sophia coppola uh movie that was a big player at oscar time it's really probably the first time i watched bill murray in something different than his comedic stuff i thought his chemistry with scarlett johansson was good it's just a good storyline it's a little, little little so at times but i did enjoy it so it's my number eight my number seven uh how about bad santa i, I think it's a christmas <laughs> classic uh it's it's what they call the dark comedy i listen i I know they did a sequel, which wasn't very good. Oof, but this this awesome. this this movie had edge in all the right places, and Billy Bob Thornton uh, could really uh, uh, carry through on, on edgy material extremely well. Uh, I, I'm a big I'm a big fan. I think it it has uh, a, a, a dark element, and it has hot, and that combination is a tough uh, a ball to juggle. But they juggled it well, and I, and this is a big fan favorite. I like it a lot. Bad Santa. Oh,
1: you got more. You got number six. What's your number six?
0: No, what I did with Terminator Three, Secondhand lines, Monster, Lost in Translation, oh, Bad Santa—I just went got, in a bad order.
1: Yeah, you kind of you got your numbers mixed up there. I it, got my sim- numbers.
0: You know why? Because <laughs> I, I was changing things at the last minute. So oh. my number ten, my number ten is Terminator Three. My number nine is Secondhand lines. My number eight is Monster. Number seven, Lost in Translation, and my number six is Bad Santa. Not seven. That's gotcha. the mistake. I, that's gotcha. the road. I went
1: now back. we're all I took caught a bad up. Turn, it's sick, Mike. I apologize. You know. Uh, Charlize wins the Oscar and you talk about the Italian job and monster in the same calendar year bonafide actress movie star is Charlize Theron no doubt about it all right my number five Chuck's probably not gonna like because for some reason he's got it in for the lead actor here but you know you bring up Ad Santa and there's another Christmas classic coming up this year Mm -hmm. but You could argue none of them had had the success or sustained the uh, uh, popularity since 2003 than Elf. And that's my number five film with Will Ferrell. It's got a lot of heart. It's got a great performance from Will Ferrell. I'm sorry uh, his shtick was spot on. This might be the quintessential Will Ferrell movie. Great uh, chemistry with Zoe uh, Deschanel as well. And if you get a heart at a James Conn, how can you go wrong? It's got a great score Ed Asner as Santa, Bob Newhart as his elf dad, and just a wonderful story of buddy, the elf coming to New York city with some really big laughs. Um, uh, the culture shock that uh, the elf has when he gets to the big city, uh, Faison Love's got a great scene as well. Uh, as, as the, uh, run, he runs the, uh, department store. I, I know you're probably going to poo poo it, but Chuck, I'm telling you this movie is as popular as it ever been. They made a Broadway show, uh, out of it as well i'm actually going to see the musical this weekend here in town yes uh elf is a christmas classic and the best part about it 90 minute running time you can put it on every christmas watch it with the kids and get a couple of really big laughs and it it is truly does have a huge heart at the end too which a christmas movie absolutely needs to have i know it's schmaltzy and you you don't like will ferrell but i'm sorry had to put Elf at my number five
0: Understood. You know, actually, uh, the last two years for our spotlight series, because our main attraction in December, which we use as a fundraiser, is dinner and a movie, which we do. It's a Wonderful Life, and get like 250, 300 people. Hopefully, will that'll happen again this year. But we always do a, a, another Christmas movie a week before. Last two years, I did Scrooge with Bill Murray, which I'm a big fan of. Yep. Didn't draw the big crowds I want, so I'm rolling the dice, and I book. Bu- we booked Elf um, for. Well, for... you can't
1: deny the popularity of. What no, I cannot. Come. Yeah, I
0: cannot. All right. I agree. You're number five. I, it's the Italian job. Uh, I I think it's a good cast. It's a good script. There's good chemistry. Um, it's 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 like an it's like a nice puzzle. Um, mm-hmm. And I like and I like it. So that's my number five.
1: Good action scenes as well with the Mini Coopers and um, like you said, some great chemistry not only between Mark Wahlberg and Charlize Theron but Mark Wahlberg and Ed Norton too is yeah, the but here, Let me
0: ask you a question: When the when the annals of history of film lore are written, what are they going to say about Ed Norton? Like what happened exactly here? Like
1: yeah, I don't he, know. I th- he did I not. Think... Did,
0: I mean, he was well respected. Uh, he's obviously a good actor, but obviously he did things that uh, that rubbed some people in the industry. That's the wrong what way. it
1: is. Yeah, that's what it lot. is. Yeah, this
0: doesn't work a lot.
1: No, he doesn't. Uh, he did the uh, glass onion movie, I guess, this past year with the. Him, but you know i i don't get it either because he's a good villain he's a good bad guy he's a good good guy uh it, it's odd what happened to his career and what i'm not crazy right they talked about a sequel for the longest time for this movie how how it didn't get uh greenlit is beyond me
0: it never materialized uh, listen i i guess you're juggling a lot of different actors who became bigger i guess after that film and you know it's not always easy to to, to cultivate uh, negotiation for individual sta- contracts in the context of an uh, context of an ensemble of a movie like this, especially a studio film, uh, so it never happened.
1: Chuck, um, my number four might be the biggest surprise of 2003 for me because of it's uh, well, let's face it, his direct this director. Um, I think I've made no bones about it. Tim Burton's not usually my favorite director when he's attached to a project. And usually for me goes off the rails as soon as it goes pen to paper. Um, and his vision is never really ever going to be my vision. So when I saw the previews for big fish, Ah, uh, with Omid McGregor, Danny DeVito, mm-hmm. and the likes. I thought, oh boy, here we go again with Tim Burton. It's all it's all style, no substance, mm-hmm. uh, all quirkiness, and and no storyline. Um, but then I saw Albert Finney as the lead actor, uh, along with uh, along with Uma McGregor and Billy Crudup as well. Yeah. And boy, I got captured into every character. In this film about the big stories that your dad might tell you, a great performance like by Allison Loman and Jessica Lang. What a cast! What a storyline! And what a huge, big heart. That, that's, at the
0: that's, end. That, that's also my number four, by the way.
1: Yeah, it, it's just um, for for first time with me and Tim Burton, we connected where he actually sh- just told a coherent story and put his quirkiness around it, but. The puzzle pieces matched up for me Where he got to the big payoff at the end And it delivered where a lot of times he just seems To throw things in movies because he's wacky These things were thrown into the movie Where it could actually make sense at the end It was almost like he was the Albert Finney character of somehow Tying it all together And, and an emotional wallop at the end And an underrated performance by Albert Finney And Billy Crudup both sensational In this film yeah, I agree. and I asked too What happened to Loman? She had a Her star Brit, uh, burnt down out really quick she is a really good actress um, And great in this film So uh, again one of those lost movies But check out Big Fish grab the Tissues because you're going to be in for a, a great ride at the end
0: I, I'm a big fan uh, I thought Ewan McGregor probably at his most Likeable that's just the type of role that really he Gravitates to where he's At his best I think all his intangibles come Out in, in full force uh, I, I, I do like this film A lot uh, good pick Mike
1: Yeah uh, no problem that's why I'm here. Uh, my number three is <laughs> one of the funniest movies of all time. Uh, oh, I
0: think we're on the same page again.
1: Um, And I I, I remember, I, I don't think I laughed as hard as I ever did in a the theater. than when, uh, oh, look at this. Another Will Ferrell movie for me. Uh, when he shoots the tranquilizer, oh, we're, not on the same page it, we're not on the same page here. And, it's, no. and, and shoots himself in the throat with the tranquilizer. I literally was on the floor laughing with my sister at this film. Old school is my third favorite movie of 2003. I can rewatch it over and over again. Uh, all three leads are hysterical and everything around them is funny too, is three schmoes try to go back to college and start their own fraternity just so they can have a house to live in. Um, just great stuff here, Chuck. I think we've talked about it in the past on our shows about funniest movies of all time. I just laugh at their laugh after laugh. And it's interesting to note who the director was of this film and that's of course Todd Phillips of course is now this big mm, joker sure. a dark yep. guy but he was making movies like old school and 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 school trip and all that stuff he was making some funny movie the hangover um old school Tremendous comedy, a hysterical movie, and I'm I'm not sure it's probably not on your list either because Will Ferrell's in it, so you automatically exclude it. But you cannot tell me uh, there aren't some really big laughs in this film.
0: Here, here's the issue I I, I have uh, with like two people that you like a lot that I don't. One is Chevy Chase. I just I mean I I like some of his movies, but overall it just it's a persona that rubs me the wrong way. There's something about Will Ferrell's man like childlike mannerisms, like a man being a child that Never really worked for me. I I don't discount the fact this movie has a lot of laughs, but just following Will Farrell for me is not something I enjoyed to do over two hour period. Here's an actor that I do want to follow. And uh, it's it's my number three. And that would be Jack Black in School of Rock, which I think is one of the funniest movies uh, with a great script and a perfect vehicle. Uh, For a comic actor, the way I would say Beverly Hills Cop fit Eddie Murphy or Jeb Back to School fit Rodney Dangerfield. Jack Black in in School of Rock is a perfect concoction of comic genius, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. Movie has a ton of heart. I remember going to see this. At the Regal movie theater uh, in Easton, opening day, me and my wife took a ride. I think we saw the one o'clock show, and, I, and when I was watching it, I looked at her and I said, "You know what? This movie's so so enjoyable. I think we're watching a classic. I liked it that much, and uh, you know, it's a movie I revisit probably once the, once a year. But I'm a Jack Black fan, and I don't think he's ever had to be a better vehicle for a movie than School of Rock. I, I actually love to see a sequel."
1: Yeah, and I, I thought uh, I thought maybe someday we would have. Um, uh, I liked it so much that it's actually on top of my list. Chuck yeah, okay. uh, School of Rock to me was the best overall film of that year. Number two comes pretty darn close, but uh, you're right; it's the perfect vehicle for the perfect person. Um, I thought a lot about Ronnie Dangerfield and and Back to School. While I was watching this movie. It's like and, and Eddie Murphy, you know, in in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. It's just like everything lines up to make sense. Oh, everything that's positive. His musical ability, um, I, you know, and what's underrated in this film are a, how good the music is that's actually in it and they're singing along and making, but how good the kids all are. Oh my, every single one of they're those great. characters uh, but, really shine in their little moments. Um, and Joan Kuzak, very funny performance, awesome. uh, as the head of the school and, and, all,
0: and the parents are all good. The way all they everything. And, the,
1: and the, and the, you know, the payoff has a kind of like a rock to it. Yeah. It, it, everything works and but let's face it the energy of jack black from frame 1 to the last frame and you take you go along for the ride you never get tired of it you never get tired of him um and yeah. it's just a perfect movie and you know look that's his persona to begin with let's not kid ourselves but for some reason it feels like he's playing a role here and he's actually playing a person and to me it's the best movie of the year
0: yeah, I listen. It's a terrific film. Here's the thing: I, I just wonder, like, what, what was on the page? What was on the written page? And then when they showed up to set, how much ad lib and uh, and and suggestion did Jack? I'm assuming it was nonstop, uh, roll the dice, and just let his brilliant comic energy uh, take over. I mean, I, there's only so much you could put on the page. Uh, he he had to be just a just a ball of energy on on that set, and the and the the end result is a great film. My my number two is Clint Eastwood's Mystic River. You know, Clint Eastwood's career has been unbelievably uh, interesting. Uh, I, I like most of what he's done. He's had a few movies that that misfired. This was a good one, a real good one. Had a good script, had good acting. I do agree with you. The movie goes very dark, but I was heavily involved. It w- winds up winning the Oscar for Best Picture. So I did put that as my number two.
1: Um. I, I, I was heavily involved too. I just uh, figured it was gonna. I don't know. I, I I just found the ending and the payoff and what they did with uh, the Tim Robbins character. I didn't feel very believable to me. Um, and I will correct you. It didn't win Best Picture. It lost to Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. But that's okay. Wow. That's okay. Sean Penn did win an Oscar for it. Wow. Um, what a
0: bummer. I've been thinking. <laughs> I've been thinking for twenty years. I don't want the Oscar for Best Picture.
1: Well, I think my number two could be your number one. And the only reason my number it two,
0: is. I, I'm assuming it is
1: the only reason my number two isn't number one anymore. I will admit on repeat viewing, it's a little awkward to watch nowadays in the society hmm. we live in now, hmm. but un- undeniably love actually is a it's great number one, two and a half hours of storytelling wrapped around a Christmas classic wrapped around an R rated film, um, with a, great cast of characters. They've tried to duplicate it millions of times. Boy, Gary Marshall made a career out of just assembling a cast, putting it around a holiday and let's see if it worked. Well, none of his movies worked because love actually works so darn good. Um, everyone's fantastic. And every storyline has a payoff and every storyline will make you cry at the end along the way. Um, Yes. It's a little creepy with a guy from walking dead, stalking someone. I get that. Yeah. It's a little weird that this prime minister is with somebody really young and they make a lot of fat jokes in it. Oh, so I can don't. see where it might not play as well as it did 20 years ago, but it's undeniably a Christmas classic. Now it's a very, you can't watch it with the kids. Uh, but for adults to sit around and get a good laugh and pull out the heartstrings, you cannot deny what happens with the little kid at the end and his relationship with Liam Neeson. It is yeah. just unbelievable Christmas, and it really it stands the test of time. And I, I get chills just thinking about the young girl's rendition of the Mariah Carey classic, and 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 Hugh Grant and and the young girl behind the the uh, the, the curtain and what how that pays out. It's just every moment and it works. I just. It would have been number one twenty years ago, probably. I just had a hard time because you, when you rewatch it, like, oh yeah, that's a little, you know. Here, here's pop- here's the thing. It's not the as director, funny as it used to be. The, direct, I know, the director. I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those yeah. guys. It's funny. It's funny, and you right. know, but it it's still it is a little awkward. I will admit to that.
0: Here here's the thing. The director just recently gave an interview, and he actually did say, in retrospect, he feels. That uh, he went overboard on a lot of some of the stuff in the film. He, he should have toned it down. Some of it was offensive, indeed. But that's really British humor, uh, in, in a in a in a nutshell. Here's the thing about Love Actually. It's an R-rated movie. At times, hot R, masquerading mm-hmm. as a PG movie because it's hot. Yeah. It's a PG movie, right? I mean, I remember bringing my daughter. We did a revival. Not a, It was a private revival of it, like uh, like five years ago, and so my daughter was 13, and I forgot. Like some of the content in the movie. Yeah. And,
1: and well, I'm content.
0: like, wow, like that is like, that's hard. R, but it is sort of a weird, weird concoction. Cause let's be honest. If this was released now, it's oh, unlikely that the studio it. would agree. They would say basically sh- shave the hardcore stuff out. Right. Yeah, It'd be yeah.
1: an hour and 40 minutes.
0: It, it, would, it would be like Keira Knightley P- wouldn't
1: be in it. You got um, a great
0: PG 13 movie with a ton yeah. of heart. You yeah. got it. You, you don't need that. You don't need the two. You don't need the two uh, nude porn stars.
1: You know, no, you don't need.
0: <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a lot of elements in the movie. And, hey, hey yeah, Alan Rickman, you, you know, you got it. You got it. You got to make him. You got to make his character pay off where he's not such a you know, he's not such a bad guy.
1: But uh, how uh, how yeah. about the scene with uh, Emma Thompson and when she gets the CD and talk it's about powerhouse uh, actress? Uh, it just, yep. it's, it's a classic scene. Yes. Um, it it does work. You're right. There there seems to be even the Colin Firth storyline. Okay, it's a little hokey. It, it probably makes doesn't you feel play
0: like as, a million bucks, though. It does. Oh, they, oh, that's mean. It, makes you feel great.
1: They all have a big payoff at the end. Um, and even the guy who just goes to to America to hook up with American women and how that they portray funny. the. It it funny. It's funny. It's funny. Now look, it's they my number two. That. They
0: probably would tone that down. Ta- they probably would, they tone would tone that down
1: too. So. It's yeah. my number two. It's your number one. There's no doubt about it. It it is a Christmas classic, but it is like like you said, uh, you probably got to wait till your son or daughter in in the late teens before you can actually sit around and and watch it. But that's a good list. I mean, that's I, a good I, list. Very
0: good. I wonder how many parents pop it, Love Actually, for their young family members and and don't they have no idea. What, well, they gonna...
1: think, oh, we might get yeah, a Liam Neeson with the kid. <sighs> yeah, it's it's got a you know. They heard an, so an, many
0: great things about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's oh, interesting. Great Christmas.
0: Right. When you hear great Christmas movie, you don't think are, right? Let's, no, you don't. See.
1: But you got one there too with Bad Santa. So Elf, Bad yeah. Santa, School, and uh, Love Actually. Something to do this uh, coming weeks ahead with Christmas movies that are all in two thousand and three. You don't see that a lot, Chuck. With no. a lot of Christmas movies really standing the test of time, all coming out. In one year. All right, real quick. Mystic River, The Italian Job, Finding Nemo, Sea Biscuit, Shattered Glass, Elf, Big Fish, Old School, Love Actually, and School of Rock are my top ten.
0: For me, uh my top ten: Terminator 3, uh Secondhand Lions, Monster, Lost in Translation, Bad Santa, The Italian Job, Big Fish, School of Rock, Mystic River, and Love Actually. Numero
1: uno, number one. All right, we'll do it all over again next week. But before we go. Chuck had a chance to sit down with Zach Schoenfeld. Uh, He wrote a new book about Nick Cage, and we'll find out more about it right now.
0: On the line, a very special guest, Zach Schoenfeld, who is a freelance uh, writer and journalist, uh, spent the last three years of his life writing a very interesting book that I got a chance to read over the last few nights, based on the first 15 years in the career of the fascinating, unique, eccentric, say what you want, there's a lot of different words you could use, of the career of Nicolas Cage, who I'm a big fan of. This book primarily spans the years of 1982 to 1995. Uh, Zach's going to tell us all about it. Zach, thank you very much for coming on the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, I just want to start off with this. Your book starts with this uh, f- first paragraph, Nicholas Cage, first grade, pef- first grade performance took place on a school bus in the fourth grade. He was Nicky Coppola, a skinny kid from a troubled family. There you have the beginning of a very fascinating book, which is extremely detailed, it sort of begins uh, in such detail with his first uh, pilot that he shot for television that was not picked up. Bounces into his first theatrical role, a very small part, in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And then goes on to cover a lot of different movies that he that he did, from Peggy Sue Got Married, to Vampire's Kiss, to uh, Leaving Las Vegas. First of all, a couple questions uh, before I, I get you going here. I think of Nicolas Cage, Zach. This is what I think of. I think of mm-hmm. uh, the there's three, there's three facts of life. One is that we're all born and die. The second is that we all pay our taxes. And the third is that Nicolas Cage will have a new movie coming out on VOD every other, every other week. So what motivated you? I think I have an idea because I read your book, but for the listening audience, what motivated you to take three years of your life in such detail to write a book about Nicolas Cage? Tell us.
2: I think he's the most interesting actor of his generation. And part of what makes him so fascinating to me is that he he's given brilliant performances in. Every genre of movie he's done, you know, great action movies. He did a great romantic performance in Moonstruck. He has done comedies. He, you know, he won an Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas, which is this very dark romantic tragedy. He's an incredibly versatile actor. And I think part of what's fascinating about Nicolas Cage is that he lives his daily life as if he's starring in a Nicolas Cage movie. You know, he (laughs) he truly is an eccentric icon and he he commits to performances with an intensity that very few other actors can can claim to have. I mean, this this is a guy who famously swallowed a live cockroach for the sake of a performance in the movie Vampire's Kiss. This is a guy who um, when he was playing a, a violent gangster in the film The Cotton Club, he insisted on remaining in character for weeks on end, you know, living living in the persona of this crazed gangster. I mean, he commits to his performances with an intensity and a zeal that I think is very rare, um, you know, in the modern era. And um, he's he's just an enigmatic figure. And I I wanted to I wanted to try to write a book that would separate fact from mythology, because there's so much there's so much mythology and rumor and stories that spread about Nicolas Cage. And and it seemed like people don't really know what is true and and what is made up. And I wanted to write a book really investigating, you know, what's the real story here? Like, where did this guy come from? All these stories that he spread about himself, are they real?
0: Here's the thing, what I learned reading the book. And again, I I guess I had a preconceived notion that Cage spent a lot of his time cranking out a lot of these movies that a lot of people may not ever get the chance to see because there are literally uh, so many. But then I I looked at his film bio based on what you wrote, and clearly Mm -hmm. he has had an amazing uh, a, a, an amazing career, very diverse. He's, he's worked with some of the you, most unique directors, from, from David Lynch at, at Wild at Heart, uh, Paul Figus, right, Leaving Las Vegas. Um, his his body of work uh, is extremely interesting. And I know in your book you stated that you went with your family to see uh, National Treasure in a movie theater. That's uh, right. And, then you, and you were sort of intrigued by, by Nicholas Cage, just sort <laughs> of a you know him playing a, an everyday guy in a, in a Disney action film. And then you got a chance to interview him uh he was uh, uh promoting a throwaway forgettable horror movie called pay the ghost and That's right. when you when you interviewed him you became more intrigued and you felt going forward you had to dig dig deeper into who this person was and what made him tick in terms of an actor correct
2: yeah yeah i interviewed him for newsweek back in 2015.
0: Okay, now what did you learn from him in person? Like, what, and and let me just expand on this. I also in your book, you state that you did an interview with actor Ethan Hawke. And when you spoke to him, you steered the conversation to Nicolas Cage, and Ethan Hawke got very excited and made a statement Mm -hmm. that said, Of all the modern actors, no actor has taken more chances in their career than Nicolas Cage. Expand on that.
2: Yeah, Ethan Hawke has been very outspoken over the years about how much he admires Nicolas cage and um i, I remember ethan Hawke said something in a reddit ama where he said and i'm, I'm paraphrasing here but he said something to sure. the effect of "Nicolas cage is the only actor in the modern era who's doing anything new with acting the rest of us are we're just you know falling in line we're just following on you know the truth-seeking era of you know 70s actors like de niro and pacino Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. is doing something different. Um, I found that quote fascinating. That's part of what got me so interested in wanting to study Nicolas Cage's performances on a deeper level, because I wanted to understand what is Cage channeling that is so different from what his peers are are doing in films? Like what, what makes Cage different? And when I began to research him, you know, I learned that he's very influenced by the silent film era, He's also mm-hmm. very influenced by German expressionist films from the 1920s in particular, films like Nosferatu or The right. Last Laugh. He's also been influenced by opera and the, you know, the more dramatic, tragic style of of performance that you, will, you would see on an opera stage. Um, and so part of what makes Cage unique as an actor is that he he is. Bringing these unique influences into modern modern film performances that you don't see from actors of his generation. And his agree. his acting style is it's more surrealist. It's more more physical. um <clears throat> especially when you watch a movie like like face Off and you look at some of the wild, exaggerated facial expressions no pun intended that he does in that sure. movie, he, you know, he he's channeling the great performances of silent film actors you know from the 20s before they even had talkies
0: no now here here's the thing the, the name of the, your book is from Coppola to Cage uh his uncle how coppola uh, became cage yeah, how Coppola became yeah. Cage, correct. Now his uncle is Francis Ford Coppola. Uh yes. I, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Nicolas Cage did three movies with uh with Francis Ford, Rumblefish, Peggy Sue got married, and, and Cotton Club. What what correct. was their relationship what was their relationship like and what was Nicolas Cage's father like and how did that, that how did that influence who Nicholas uh, cage became as a man and as an actor in that family dynamic?
2: Yeah. There was so part of what got me so fascinated to write about Nicolas Cage, he he had a very complicated love-hate relationship with his uncle. Um, you know, on one hand, he had great, he had enormous respect for his uncle's movies, especially The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Um, but when Cage was a teenager, he deeply resented living in the shadow of his uncle's fame. And and he you know people would dismiss him because you know he was just Francis Ford Coppola's nephew people thought that he was getting a free ride um and so there's a complicated relationship there because cage cage was desperate to assert himself and to establish himself outside of you know the the Coppola the Coppola family um right. so on one hand he changed his name to cage specifically because he wanted to set himself apart from his famous uncle but then on the other hand he agreed to to star or co-star in three of his uncle's movies so clearly he did benefit from his uncle's position in the industry um right. but you know as i write about in my book he, he he kind of misbehaved in some of those movies he he gave a very bizarre performance in peggy sue got married he, he he did this weird nasally voice against his uncle's wishes and he he got in some trouble on that film set he you know he <laughs> did some pranks with jim carrey who was also in that movie and so there and Francis never cast him in another movie again after Peggy Sue got married. So there, there was a complicated um relationship between those two men, that which I delve into quite a bit in the book. Uh Cage's father, August Coppola, was right. the brother of Francis. So August Coppola was a literary professor, um, and he was a very eccentric, intense man in his own right. He was he was a brilliant professor. He um he also wrote a very a filthy erotic novel that was published when Cage was in high school um he, and he he um August Coppola also had this resentment towards Francis because August had been the golden child of the family he was a brilliant student and he was kind of consecrated for success and I think August resented the fact that Francis's you know incredible success in filmmaking overshadowed everything else in the family
0: Do, uh Two movies, uh, in, in his first fifteen years, just touch base on him. Obviously, Valley Girl nineteen eighty three, a big movie in in his career, and then bounce into go go into nineteen eighty nine Vampire Kiss, which is regarded as one of his over the top stranger performances. He's extremely proud of it, based on what you say in the book. It did not mm-hmm. do well at the box office. So Valley yeah. Girl eighty three. Vampire Kiss 89. Expand on those two films. Yeah. And, and,
2: so uh, and, Valley, Valley Girl was, was Cage's very first starring role. That's that's the movie that really jumpstarted his career. Um, he was only 18 when he did that film. He had he had just dropped out of Beverly Hills High. And in that movie, he he gave a very memorable performance as this Hollywood punk, rebellious punk who falls in love with the Valley Girl. Uh, and it's it's kind of a Shakespearean star-crossed romance um and you know cage was kind of a handsome hunky teenager at the time and the girls swooned over that performance um and so that that's that movie base basically made him a star virtually overnight and set him on his path to and it's a good movie yeah it's it's a fun movie great soundtrack uh wonderful soundtrack um vampires kiss came um, some years later, th- that was in the late '80s when Cage was in an era of his career where he had recently done Moonstruck. Moonstruck was a huge hit, made him this, you know, rom- rom-com star. People were swooning over his his performance in Moonstruck. Um, right. But Cage, Cage didn't like Moonstruck at the time. He he wanted to be more of a rebellious, experimental actor. He wanted to be in more abrasive uh you know m- more intense films he he wanted he wanted to be a punk rocker and so he he did vampire's kiss kind of as a reaction to moonstruck to distance himself from that mm, like from that rom-com uh atmosphere and vampire's kiss is a much darker film in which he plays he plays this guy who has a love affair with a woman who bites him and he becomes convinced that she's a vampire and he's turning into a vampire and he he kind of descends into insanity and he he stalks around uh, the nocturnal Manhattan nightclub scene of the late 80s you know acting like a vampire it's, it's it's a really fun really wild movie and as I mentioned earlier that's that's the movie where he famously swallowed a live cockroach on camera which is a legendary legendary story Got it. R-
0: wrapping up, I read also in your book that uh, in terms of his peers, he seems to be extremely well-respected. He uh, he was very well-respected by Sarah Jessica Parker in Honeymoon in in, in in Vegas. They wound up having a fling. Uh, Elizabeth Shue in Leaving Las Vegas said that she didn't know what to expect, what kind of baggage you would bring to the set, but she wound up having tremendous, tremendous respect for him. I believe, just in, in wrapping up, the industry as a whole, what do they think about Nicolas Cage? And then tell us, again, the name of your book and where they can where they can get it.
2: Well, I think many, many people who Cage has worked with, they have deep respect for him. And mm-hmm. I interviewed a lot of actors and filmmakers and cinematographers for this book, and nearly all of them, um, they spoke about Cage with fervent admiration and also a level of fascination because, uh, as I mentioned, you know, Cage is so unique among his generation of actors. And I think people are very intrigued and mystified by him. Um, the name of the book is How Coppola Became Cage. It's out now. Um, it's available, available on Amazon and also in bookstores all over the country. And I, I hope I hope people will check it out.
0: I think they will. I highly recommend it. I thought it was a terrific read, very very insightful. Obviously, you spent a ton of time in research. Um, I respect the work very much, Zach. Thank, thank you, you very much for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is Chuck Curry from Audio One. You just listened to my interview with Zach Schoenfeld, his new book, How Coppola Became Cage.
2: Thanks for listening
0: to Movie Moments with Chuck Curry and Mike Rags. Download and listen to an archive show, or be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts to hear our new episode.